and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we discuss a variety of justice-related issues affecting the world over a cup of coffee. Wow, what is going on in this world? I really hope wherever you're listening to this, that you're okay and safe and in relatively good spirits. It doesn't feel real, does it? You'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to use this intro as an opportunity to share my musings on the issue of the coronavirus pandemic. But I will explain how this is affecting us at Blue Bear. So, as you would imagine, our loyal wholesale partners have stopped ordering. Because in the UK, we're in lockdown. The restaurants, pubs, cafes, churches, businesses, and all those we supply are closed. However, however... We have seen a real spike in sales from our very lovely retail customers who are stocking up on coffee for this indefinite period of hibernation. Thank you if you're one of those people. We need to keep that up to try and offset the loss of our wholesale business. So please keep ordering coffee and sharing us with your networks if you can. Thank you ever so much. If this is the first time you've listened to this podcast and you're wondering what on earth is he talking about, this podcast is produced by Blue Bear Coffee Company, which is a social enterprise. We sell specialty coffee, ethically and sustainably sourced from across the developing world, and use our profits and our profile to support organisations fighting human trafficking and caring for survivors. So there you go. In regards to this podcast, for obvious reasons, we've had to cancel a number of recordings that we'd lined up this spring. But due to the inexplicable magic and majesty of the internet, we can still function. Today I spoke to Troy Anderson. I met Troy a couple of months ago in Bangkok for a coffee. Well, I had a coffee, he had a smoothie or something. Emily Chalk from the last episode of the podcast connected us which was good of her. Troy runs an organisation called Speak Up for the Poor, which aims to fight child marriage by providing an education programme to girls from impoverished communities in Bangladesh. I really liked meeting Troy in Thailand. I really liked speaking to him today, and I think you'll really like him too. So, here we go on our first ever Skype call podcast. So, Troy, thank you, mate, for finding the time to jump on a call with me. I, I want to start by obviously welcoming you to the Justice and Coffee podcast. We narrowly missed out on an opportunity to actually have this um, over coffee in person in Thailand a couple of months ago. Um, regretfully, that opportunity passed us by. But here we are uh, doing it across, across the Internet. But obviously, the first question has got to be, even before I ask about your coffee drinking habits, how are you finding things? What would this crazy world we're currently living in with the, the coronavirus pandemic? How are things where you are? Yeah, well, I'm in Bangkok, Thailand right now, and I'm kind of stuck here. I'm not able to get back to Bangladesh where I am most of the time because Thailand's on lockdown and you can't get in and out and Bangladesh the same. So I'm kind of stuck here. So I got back here about two and a half weeks ago um, to get here before Thailand shut down too much. But then I couldn't get into Bangladesh. So I kind of use this as a hub. So it's good. I mean, I'm safe. I'm healthy. I have a place to stay. So, I mean, I can't complain. It's just a little bit uh, 
isolated and boring, but I think a lot of people are in that place now. But um, yeah, Bangkok is bustling more than I think it should be, but there's a lot of lockdown procedures in place as well. But I'm doing well and here in Thailand. And you can still get to the shops and, and sort of supply yourself with yeah, whatever you need. Yeah, food, food uh, little markets are open, um, grocery stores, at least the food part of them are open. So basic necessities you can do, yeah. Thank goodness for that. And coffee, I'm going to ask you about coffee, even though I know your answer. Yeah. Have you stocked your shelves up? Are you supplied with coffee for the foreseeable? Yeah, actually, I'm not. And um, <laughs> yeah, I know that that's your thing and it's all good, but I'm not really a coffee drinker. I don't know why, but I never really have other than I think I mentioned this to you that um, I lived in the Middle East when I was a kid and then traveled there a few times as a young adult and got into Turkish coffee which they have some similar versions of it in some of the Arab countries, but the real sludgy thick stuff I drink kind of in social occasions or when I'm there, but I don't really drink coffee. So, And yet we still yeah. hit it off when we met. I can't believe yeah. it. We can still be friends. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about um, not being able to be in Bangladesh. Do you want to just explain um, what you do in Bangladesh and what, 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 your, what your reason for being in that part of the world is? Sure. Yeah, so um, I founded and run a nonprofit organization called Speak Up for the Poor. I just refer to it as Speak Up. And Speak Up, our mission is to work empowering and defending girls in poverty. So our um, we have small projects in Lebanon and Cambodia funding girls to keep them in school and out of trouble. But our main project, basically 98% of our overseas budget, is in Bangladesh, where we run a large girls' education program and have a team fighting against child marriage. And so we have about 1,500 girls in 30 villages that we're working with to keep them in school up through university and fighting against child marriages. And I mean, in the big picture, we also help fund a home for young girls that we've helped remove from brothels so they won't be prostituted. So all different projects um, helping um, defend and empower girls in poverty. Amazing. I love um speak up and uh, i've really enjoyed getting to know a little bit more about about what you're doing and i want us to definitely discuss that issue of child marriage and and hear your very informed um your experienced opinion on it but before we do i want to know about troy i want to find out more about you and and your journey into into this this incredible mission that you've started I mean, where did that begin is it something you've come to more recently in life or how far does it go back, your desire to, to pursue justice or, or fight this injustice? Yeah, um, kind of the issues having to do with the girls in poverty and uh, sexual exploitation of girls and that kind of whole issue, probably about uh, 20, 18, 20 years ago, I first started learning about those kind of issues, starting with my interest in issues of human trafficking and the commercial sex industry and that led me to law school, which led me to start what I'm doing, which I can explain. So there's this phase, I guess the second half of my current life now was learning about that. I also have some roots of that in my childhood because I traveled around a lot with my parents' work and living in different countries. And that I think planted in me a lot of um, just interest in the world and different social issues. And I kind of gained a heart for just things I saw, places of poverty and brokenness. And so, I think childhood planted some of my desire to kind of serve the world and kind of open my eyes to see things in a certain way. If that makes sense. I remember chatting about it 
when we did meet and you mentioned growing up or spending a period of your childhood in, in the Yemen. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I lived in uh, Yemen for second, third and fourth grade and then Syria, fifth through eighth grade. So my dad was a principal administrator of different international schools in Sana'a, Yemen and Damascus, Syria. So I spent my grade school, junior high years in um, those countries. And yeah, so Yemen, I moved there when I was, I think, seven. So seven, eight, nine, ten, something like that. I was those years I was in there and just, you know, I went to an American or an well, international school. So my friends were from all the different countries, the same as in Syria. I think in Syria, our school had kids from 40 countries. So for me, that was kind of uh, natural growing up with to be very connected with different people from different countries. And I kind of saw it as normal, like my buddies were from Poland and Hungary and Yugoslavia and Russia and like all these Eastern Bloc countries when I was in Syria. So, so some of the, the things that I experienced there, I remember seeing you know, poverty there. The, the first thing I think we may have discussed this earlier was um, seeing some of the either refugees or very poor immigrants that were from the uh, rural areas of Yemen or from they crossed the Red Sea from what's now Eritrea, Djibouti, Ethiopia. Um, some people coming over into um, Yemen as refugees or people just fleeing famine. And I remember seeing a lot of these like kind of refugee camps or just very poor slum-like camps that first, even as a young kid, like eight, nine years old, opened my eyes to poverty and just, you know, you go home and ask your mom, like, do they live in that shack? You know, that's like worse than where we park our car, you know? So that was what the time that opened my eyes to those things. Yeah, that 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 juxtaposition of of living standards, and I think growing up in the UK and and my whole idea of um, life is informed by my own experiences of through from my own lens of what poverty is, sure. and and then you go and see it uh, in a country in a developing country, and your whole uh, perspective is altered and changed. So having that upbringing must have must have informed a great deal of of the characteristics you have and why you ended up doing what you're doing now I can only presume that's the case yeah yeah definitely I remember as a kid actually the the thing that struck me as the worst injustice and this is a kid speaking when I was like seven I there was a lot of wild dogs and I really loved dogs and I had to leave my dog behind in the U.S. when I moved to to Yemen as a kid and and I remember thinking, when I get older, I'm going to buy this big piece of property and I'm going to put all the dogs there and I'm going to help save them because people mistreated them and they were scroungy and you're running around in packs. And, but I remember even as a young kid, I had these ideas of one day I'm going to do something to like serve the world. And, you know, it's good to, you know, help animals and those kind of things that have their place. But now I kind of moved on to doing something different. But I remember thinking that when I was in law school, like, oh, I used to want to like do this big movement to help all the dogs and, you know, little puppies. I thought, but now I'm realizing like my calling in life or the thing on my heart is to actually do something, you know, as big as I can, not for big sake, but, you know, for the sake of impact, doing something to help who I saw as the most vulnerable people in the world, which were girls in poverty being exploited. So, yeah, I mean, you can see traces of your your current, you know, thinking and mentality, even back as a young kid, it helps you understand yourself, I think. Well, Troy, I, I applaud that. Absolutely. I think the temptation, um, well, the many temptations that come in life to take a, a different path, right, to actually have that somewhat um, ideal led uh, aspiration for your life that gets yeah. compromised when 
actually be quite nice to, to earn, earn a slightly better salary. Maybe I could presume you could do that maybe with a law degree in, in other fields of, of commerce and industry rather than in the NGO sector. But you start with it. And I think that's remarkable. I also like your reference to that. How can I make as bigger impact, you know, that scale of impact as possible as an, as an individual before I curl my toes up and call it a day, you know, and uh, I, I I also I like that start of thinking, right? Think think big. Um, but there's there's probably I mean I, I'm interested to know whether you had that period of your life, whether there was a, a temptation of actually I'm going to take a few years here and work work in the corporate sector, or did you always as soon as you were were somewhat qualified or when you left university ready to to work in the NGO sector? Yeah. Well, I um, after university I worked for. Uh, Christian like campus ministry for a while and then did some inner city work in Los Angeles. So I, was, I always, from the beginning, I kind of had a life changing moment, I guess, early in college when I decided to go different direction than kind of my career ambitions. Um, kind of, it's maybe a religious experience or something, but I, that was kind of my, even from when I was like 21 finishing university, I was in, I went to do stuff, which to me was more about service or ministry in a sense. So I've always been that for a while. Right after law school, I worked for a couple of years for the district attorney. Um, so, I mean, that I made a decent salary, but it wasn't like working corporate stuff. But I've never really been attracted to um, going like corporate law or business things in a certain sense, even though I have a business degree and a law degree. I've always been, you know, wanting to do kind of social not just service oriented. Like when I was in university, I, I kind of toyed with like wanting to do like the CIA because like anything that was like, so for me, my temptation wasn't like go get rich necessarily, but maybe I would have done stuff in the social political sector that wasn't necessarily the most humanitarian. But um, so mostly now though, I'm trying to build my life around a more humanitarian thing. But I mean, I'm normal. It's not like I'm some you know, Mother Teresa or some angel, but, but, you know, the, yeah, so for quite a while, I've been doing things now the last 10, 12 years, I've been doing running speak up mostly in Bangladesh the last eight, nine years. And that's kind of what I'm building my life around now. And, and why did you decide to start a charity? Um, well, I, I was in law school and I volunteered with a few different organizations doing, um, legal work and investigations on, on human trafficking and um, forced prostitution and those kind of issues. And I started Speak Up like legally on the, the paperwork side of it during law school because I knew it was either I it was going to be difficult getting a job as a lawyer with organizations or I was 32, 33, something like that. When I started law school, knew that as much even the legal field, they won't say it. When I'm 35 or 36, it wouldn't be as easy to get a new legal job as a 24 or 25 year old. So I thought I'm going to start this organization to run if I can't get another job as a lawyer in another NGO. And then during law school and then right after I needed to just work for a while to pay off some of my loans and kind of get my feet to, under me. And during that time, I thought through what I should actually do. And, um, Really, there's two paths. One, you can go with an established NGO organization, which has its own stability, but has different limitations in that you're one of, you know, many people in a system on the ladder. Or I could start something new, which has massive challenges, like you wake up and realize you have no money and no name and you're nobody. 
but you can kind of do whatever you want. And that appealed to me and that I knew as I learned about different issues that I could build something exactly, you know, as much as, well, yeah, exactly like I wanted to, which is what we've done in Bangladesh in learning about child marriage and more the preventative side of things. I could build something that reflected exactly my understanding of how best to tackle these things. And and that issue of, of child marriage, like I would love for you to educate me more on, on, yeah. on that subject. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, I, as I've mentioned, <clears throat> I kind of got my interest in the, a lot of these issues having to do with uh, girls in poverty and that exploitation more in the more dramatic kind of forced prostitution issues and trafficking, which was kind of the and continues to be the big issue that more NGOs talk about. But as I realized over time, and especially in Bangladesh, I realized that just numerically, the issue of child marriage, which is technically a girl being, well, it could be a boy too, but most cases, a, a girl being forced into an illegal marriage before the age of 18. Um, some people call it early marriage, whatever, but but that that issue numerically is just so overwhelming and so massive, it may not be as dramatic in people's minds as a girl being held in a brothel, but it really, to me, was one of the the huge issues going on in the world. So like the UN estimates, it's hard to calculate exactly, but 25 to 30 or 35,000 child marriages every day, which is a number you can't even get your mind around every three or four seconds. But basically, like in a country like Bangladesh, where still 60% of the young women are married before the age of 18 in arranged marriages, and these aren't like 10 or 11 year old girls, but there's some as young as 13. Um, most of them in Bangladesh should be 15 or 16. They're in arranged marriages given away by their family to another family, but ultimately because of poverty and because of a view of women that generally they're second class, whether they're Muslim, Hindu, or Christian, um, that they are basically they're only good for marriage. That's their purpose in life is to please their in-laws, please their husband, have children, cook and clean. And so what this does is create a massive cycle of female poverty that is just ongoing and ongoing for generations. This is not just in Bangladesh. This is a massive issue. Um, basically, if you draw a line from Bangladesh all the way over to the farthest um, western end of North Africa, basically this region of the world, South Asia and parts of South Central Asia there, the Middle East and parts of some of North Africa, but especially Sub-Saharan or right there in Mali, Central Africa, that part of the um, Niger, that there are, you know, hundreds of millions of women who alive today who were married as children and hundreds of millions of girls alive today who will be married before their age of 18. And what it does, if you just look at the what it does to society, girls who drop out of school and get married face a number of huge problems. So they're more likely to die in childbirth because they're smaller. They're more likely to have unhealthier children. They themselves are uneducated and their children are going to be less educated. They're unable to generate income for their family. They're more susceptible to sexually transmitted diseases because their body is less developed. They're more susceptible to domestic violence, all kinds of abuse because they're powerless as a young girl in their family. So there are a ton of massive problems socially, demographically, 
um, in the health sector that come out of um, millions and millions of girls being forced into illegal child marriages. So when I started understanding that and then seeing that reality for girls that I was starting to serve there in Bangladesh, I thought this is one of the huge things that, <coughs> excuse me, that we would tackle. So, um, yeah, so we're we're trying to do that in these 30 villages there in Bangladesh. I don't know if that explanation makes oh, sense. It's super. It's great. What, the kind of stuff we're working on, yeah. One of the things I was going to ask is, you know, what is the harm? What is the harm of children being married at that age specifically girls but you covered it what um you know is it you also mentioned at the top of that it's mainly a female problem it's not it's not a case that you've got young boys being uh, forced into marriage generally and if that is is the situation um that they're not well why not yeah yeah well generally not i mean there's like in bangladesh the law is girls cannot be married till 18 although the law is regularly and just openly flaunted. And for boys, it's 21. The law technically being, or the idea being that the boys get their stuff together a little bit, so they're 21, 22, then they can support their wife potentially. But, I mean, the, 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 heart, of, the heart of this issue to me comes down to two things, like I just mentioned. It's poverty and a low view of women. Mm. So if you have, as a starting point, well, whichever one is the starting point, let's say the starting point is you have a massive poverty. And we're not, in Bangladesh, generally we're not talking about people starving because it's a very fertile country. There's lots of rice. People aren't starving generally. So it's not like famine. But if you have a poverty where there aren't a lot of economic opportunities and there isn't a high education level in some of the village areas, and there's just, you know, it's a very poor country, even though it is developing and getting better. But poverty or brokenness in uh, in society that a combination with a low view of women which comes from variety of social factors it's not all religion but it can be tied to religion or just a cultural view of women or history like look all the women are uneducated so women are foolish but it's like well they're uneducated because you're dropping them out of school it's a self-fulfilling prophecy but those two things if you could boil it down, why is there child marriage? It's those two things. So men aren't being forced to marry at 16, basically because the whole concept is you're, it, it's not that dads who are sending their girls into child marriage are necessarily bad people. They might've married a girl when she was 15 and they're just normal guys. That's what's expected of them. But they're putting their daughter into what they think will be a stable family. So really stable families can't be built around 16 year old men. You know, if the hierarchy is the guy is going to provide and the woman's going to stay at home. So it theoretically can work a 21 year old day laborer because he can at least pay for his wife. But it wouldn't work in reverse. Right. A 16 year old boy. How is he going to provide for a wife? So generally, I mean, in broad strokes, boys are not being abused that way. That's not to say like, you know, there's, you know, a huge problem of boys in the commercial sex industry and boys being trafficked and. But in terms of child marriage as a phenomenon, that's generally not something that men are going to be forced into because it is a power thing. It's a patriarchal thing. It's a sexual power thing. So it's men are not going to be victims generally in that. Although there's a lot of unhappy men that are or at least confused boys that are 20 years old getting married. And I've seen some of them like and they don't know what they're doing either. Like they're petrified because they're not really mature enough to get married. But. Does that make sense? It's really yeah. not. A, so, I mean, but it's bigger than a girl's issue because this is destroying or at least hampering society. But women are the most direct victims of it. 
I mean, this is a this is a cultural practice that yeah. isn't a new thing. Is it? It's something that goes back you know, centuries in some cultures. And for those and our, that, I mean, our own, in our, our own, own, right? I mean, it's not like I mean, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Back, you won't have to go back too many generations to find our great grandmothers or whatever got married when they were eighteen, and not too far back in history, ever all the you know the European monarchs marrying off their daughters to each other when they're fourteen and fifteen, and certainly that was the practice. Um, that that's, you know, once girls pass puberty, it's they're ready to get married. And when life expectancy is 45 years, you know, it makes sense. Well, let's get married when we're 15 because you don't have much life to live. But uh, but that's the historical things are true. And, and even now, even in the U.S., there's still problems with, you know, child marriage. There, there's not a federal law against it. And most states allow it in some things are 16 and 17 year old girls being married but um, it's not a massive epidemic as it is in some countries like Bangladesh and India. So those people that would say well hang on what you're doing is you're imposing a western cultural practice a western standard upon um, a different culture for those people that would ask you that question yeah. how, would, how would you respond? Yeah. yeah there's a few things I mean one is most of that question is only asked by other westerners I never ask that question by someone in Bangladesh. There are other issues that a person in Bangladesh or India might ask me, like, who are you as a white Westerner to be here, Colonia? But, but not about the law, because it is the Bangladeshi law. So at a fallback, I can always say, and it's true, that it's not my law, this is your law. Even we talk to police and say, this is your law. And I mean, certainly it's a, it's a relic of the British Empire days. So they could say, well, it's the British law. I'm like, well, it's your law now and your own prime minister and leadership. So at the highest level of Bangladesh leadership, they are against uh, child marriage. So it's not just my idea. And a lot of those kind of concerns tend to be kind of like these theoretical Western liberal concerns, like who are you to impose? And it's a different argument than what the argument is on the ground. But to the people who legitimately ask that question from the West, I say the I don't go and no smart NGO worker or you know social worker goes to a place and just says, you're all wrong, you're all bad, you're all evil, do this and change. That doesn't work and that generally isn't the heart of people in this field of work anyway. So we go to villages and this might happen over a long period of time and this isn't just me talking this is our bangladeshi staff so it's not just me saying this but we talk with moms and dads about what they want for their family so we can have a simple conversation what do you want your grandchildren to do or when you're old and sick what would you like your daughter and her husband to be able to do for you and would you like your grandchildren to go to school and when you ask these questions everyone in the world besides the bottom one percent who are in desperate poverty that don't even have daily food to even think about these things the bulk of people in poverty in the world have optimism not necessarily optimism but they have hope or they want they have a dream for the future mm -hmm. and if you can articulate and help them articulate what their dreams are then they very quickly come to see what they want for life doesn't fit with marrying off their daughter's young because of what i just described all those 20 problems, because I can say, here are the benefits. Imagine if your daughter, instead of married at 16, becomes a teacher and then marries a teacher and then you can just think here. And, and this appeals to people. So it's ineffective and it's not our strategy anyway to go and tell people like, oh, you bad people, you're marrying off your daughters, you rapists, whatever. 
it's going in and saying, what do you want for your daughter and your family and from your son-in-law one day? And then articulate, if you want that, here's how educating your daughter can be a part of doing something better. So always it's appealing to something that people naturally want. They might not be able to see it because there's been three, 400, 500 years, whatever of child marriage. But once they see that path, people are eager to do that. And they're like, yeah, take like do something with my daughter. That's not to say we don't use force when necessary because we do work with the police and there are men, there are fathers that I say, bottom line after our conversation, like, so if you marry your daughter tomorrow, like we know you're thinking of doing, the police will come and you're my friend and I've spent six hours drinking tea with you, but the police will come. So we do work with the force, you know, things need to be enforced, but that's not me bringing my white man army. It's the local Bangladeshi police enforcing their own laws. So I would say to those things, it's not me or Westerners or whoever imposing our ideas, even if the kernel of the law maybe have been a Western idea, appealing to what people actually want for their lives and then helping map out here in a modern society. And there's moms who all were married when they were 14, 15, 16. And I say, that might've been painful, maybe good, whatever, but you know, it doesn't work nowadays. Because if you want your daughter to be a teacher, she can't be married when she's 15. And moms get it, even if they're totally uneducated. They want something better. So I've been rambling, but I'd say in brief, we appeal to what people really want, and that is incompatible with child marriage. I think you answered that extremely well. Remaining with um, those awkward questions that typically, like you said at the outset, aren't asked by people who you're serving. They tend to be asked by people who are being awkward for the sake of it perhaps um you know what to those that would so hang about you know you touched on it anyway in your answer but as a white western american man working in a field that predominantly serves teenage girls this is yeah. not your fight this is someone else's fight why have you chosen this as your your battle to 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 involve yourself in yeah well i mean there and i can answer that on multiple multiple levels too so I've had people that one directly ask me that, and I will say to them, I've never, they, people would say, one person said, the brown girls don't need a white guy to save them. And I say, well, I never use the word save anyway. It's not me being the savior. But if I, I'm helping or empowering girls and edu helping educate them along with my team, but I've never heard a brown girl complain about the color of their uncle, right? Just, this is a white, a, uh, our own guilt about colonialism and stuff. We have to deal with that because there are serious, I mean, serious things not to discount that, but no one has ever complained about that. The, the, the help people on the ground because girls who are in a place, like you say, do you want to be a teacher? Yes, uncle. They don't care who who's helping them. I mean, on the ground, I need to be humble. It needs to be about empowering my team, as many women as possible, all locals. Um, those are good. But on the highest level, even now in the middle of this coronavirus thing, like just think of how much better the world would be off if instead of a hundred million girls married in the last five years into child marriage, those hundred million girls were in school and five million of them were nurses right now. How much better the world would be off. So if someone to say, it's not your fight, I'm like, well, what are you fighting? Because if you want to fight massive global pandemics, I'll tell you, 
there's a million potential nurses just in Bangladesh right now, if we're wise enough to invest in them. And the like Sheikh Hasina, the prime minister of Bangladesh is known for like recounting the lists. We need 50,000 doctors and 100,000 teachers, 100,000 nurses. And one day with just light bulb moment, I thought these girls that we're working with are not just a charity case. They're the, they're the ones who are the saviors. They're gonna save their country. You need 100,000 nurses, they're right there. So I'd say like, if someone say it's not your fight, I'm like, well, what is your fight? Because if your fight is tackling the worst global issues, I know what at least one solution is to not just look at these girls as charity cases to defend, but empower them to save the thing, save the world. So if you want 100,000 doctors, I can give them to you. Not I personally, but like we can if we empower these girls. So it is everyone's fight. So there are other issues with that, like as a man, like how do you deal with working with girls? And there's things you can do to be smart if you want me to talk about that kind of stuff. Um, oh, yeah, just very, very briefly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, we have standard of conduct, but basically my rule is I'm never alone with a girl. So and I'm very rarely alone with a woman. I mean, that just for cultural reasons, but even with our staff, you know, we might go like on the rickshaw to meetings and stuff, but I'm always in groups. So there's smart things you can do. Um, as, as long as I do things always in a group, there's, there can never be that accusation, but then, but there's a whole positive side of being a man on these issues because there are certain roles that only women can do certain counseling roles, certain relationship building roles, even with our team of social workers, there's certain thing that certain, the men are like, well, you can't do these things obviously, cause you can't build that relationship with the girls in the same way, give them a hug, whatever. Um, but there's also a thing there's it's narrower but there's a certain thing that only men can do in that healthy people in the world need good men and women role models in their life so there is a role mine's a strange one working with bangladeshi girls because i'm a foreigner but there is a role to be an uncle that is a healthy role model and a healthy authority figure for girls and i play that to my to the best of i can almost like a father figure to some of the girls removed from the brothel but um, there is a specific role for men in this. Um, so I try to play that role. Hopefully I play that well. Yeah, and I think I appreciate you making um, uh, reference to that because I, you know, as a white, Western, uh, arguably middle class um, guy trying to exist in this space too, you know, I don't want to do it apologetically. Um, yeah. I, I want to help the world. And if that means yeah. it's helping people that are, that are, are young teenage girls or boys or any other, um, you know, pocket of society, I don't want to have to make excuses to want to help. Now, it's right, I think, that like, like the safeguarding measures you put in place, that those are adhered to and you hear about charities. Um, and there has been some negative press associated with charities that haven't had that level of oversight, you know, who's watching the people that are watching out for us sort of thing. And I, so I do think there's a, a place for asking those questions. Absolutely. I think standards need to be improved in many cases around the world, but also not people shouldn't be dissuaded from getting involved in helping because they're scared about what other people should say. Um, yeah. you, you've answered it far better than I could if anyone was ever to put that question to me, but you mentioned your team and it's quite, quite a team. So maybe you could tell me just briefly about, you know, what, what your team, looks like how it's made up obviously at the moment they're probably all stuck indoors but 
Um, tell me a little bit about about yeah. your team and, yeah, so and how they work. Right now, like in the two week shutdown in Bangladesh, so I've been talking to all my main staff there the last couple of days, and they're calling the girls. And actually, we're kind of joking about this, but actually, there's going to be no child marriages for like a month because everyone's scared to get out, and the government's really enforcing it. So actually, our girls are maybe even safer than normal um, during the springtime when there are, particularly in the Hindu community in March and April, a lot of child marriages generally. So, um, but our team is all Bangladeshi. I mean, in the US, I have my American board and one speak up employee besides myself. But, um, and then in Cambodia and Lebanon, we'd fund stuff through other organizations. But in Bangladesh, our main project, it's all Bangladeshi staff. So we have, um, I just put a picture on Facebook. You could look at it, there's like 20, or 25 full-time people that like two cooks, three security guards, a dorm for our building, a dorm woman who's a dorm mother, two college women uh, that run our college GEP and about 15 full-time people that manage all of our program in the field. Um, they're all Bangladeshis about, besides the guards, um, about 50, 50 men and women. But um, yeah, they're like a team kind of acting as social workers and three guys who are advocacy team kind of doing the legal work, kind of judicial system work with the police. So they are all Bangladeshis, all from that native to that region. Some of them native from some of the villages where we're working. Um, a couple of the junior women on our team are women who have come up through our program. And then our teachers, we have 55 part-time teachers and tutors eight or 10 of them are uh, young women who were girls in our program. So we're trying to get more of our girls into our staff eventually. So yeah, it's all Bangladeshis. Um, so, you know, I was going to, I was going to ask you that whether, cause you've said it's been going 10 to 12 years. I was going to say, have you seen um, your, your service users go through quite some story to a point that they're actually working for you is amazing. Yeah. A few of them are. So we've, um, yeah, Bangladesh, this is the ninth year of our G, our girls' education program. So nine years, eight and a half years we've been there. So um, we don't we have we have maybe eight or ten young women who have finished um, university college and nine or ten that have finished nursing school. None of them are working for us. But there are a couple of girls who are in university still or kind of these college programs still living at home that are our part-time tutors. But yeah, it'll be the big wave of our girls are still in early college or 10th, 11th, 12th grade. So in four or five years from now, we'll have more of them that are graduating. And I think three or four years from now, we might have 50, 100 eventually girls every year finishing college, you know, from villages where no one ever used to even get higher education. And some of them will work for us. Um, cool. So we're just starting to get a little taste of that. Yeah. That's awesome. And Troy, yeah. I just wonder how, you um, managed to, to fund your projects. How do you get support for the work you're doing? You said it didn't come through grants. It comes through through donors. So maybe you could tell me a little bit how that works. Sure. So in 2019, we raised uh, just shy of 500,000 US dollars. So we're not a massive organization. Hopefully that's going to increase. But we um, that came from about 650 donors. So if you do a little quick math, you know, most of our donors are people who give 35 to $100 a month, um, a lot of them personal friends, but you know, that's growing. But we have individual people rather than relying on big grants. A large part, about two thirds of our money that comes in is through our sponsorship, where people sponsor for $35 a month, one girl in our girls education program. 
So they give $35 a month recurring. They're connected with one girl or young woman who they can write letters back and forth to and get a few pictures and follow her progress. And for a lot of people, that is a way that they can kind of tackle this massive issue. And instead of like thinking, oh, I'm paying for insurance or I'm paying for some boring thing, their money can be directed toward one girl. Um, so it's a way to keep donors um, connected, um, to keep them inspired, to, to, to support us through the sponsorship model. So we have about two, yeah, about maybe 60%, two thirds of our money that comes in that way. So we encourage people to get on board. Um, to sponsor a girl because you can't like solve these global problems, but you can help one girl. And so, you know, some people even don't like the word sponsorship. And I say, okay, what, even if you don't like the word, every kid in the world needs help to stay in school. What our money goes to is to help give girls uniforms, school supplies, tutoring, to give stipends to our college girls. It pays some of the salaries for our social workers, but it helps support an entire program that makes the school system work. So there are people that don't like even the model. And I think there's a growing movement in the West for in some circles, people think, oh, is this even a paternalistic colonialist thing? Similar to other answers I've given you, I think some of that accusation or question is this theoretical thing that doesn't reflect reality because the girls love it. They, they don't use the term sponsor, they just use the friend, say friend. So I say, who's your bondu? Who is your friend? And they'll say, oh, my friend is Bryn. He's in UK and he's a whatever. And they love to have someone who they have a picture with that they can. It's very encouraging for a young girl to know somewhere around the girl world. It could be we have sponsors in North America, Europe, Asia and Australia and Oceania. Somewhere in one of these four continents, I have an outsider that is willing to invest in my education. And it's a great encouragement to girls. So um i don't quite understand all of the problems people have with sponsorship models i see theoretically some of the things you have to be careful so that you don't have a like a jerk come and visit your program but i screen every kind of visitor and make sure that you know we look at the letters and the pictures so that it's not like people sending pictures of someone in a bikini like that's inappropriate whatever but we've managed most of those problems but um yeah we call it our girls education program sponsorship and for people it's a very positive experience and every girl would love to have a sponsor Troy what is what are the biggest challenges you face with speak up and the work you're doing um well every nonprofit and organization probably talk about financial challenges so that's always one thing so um but we actually have a pretty good donor base we're not a big organization but we have pretty faithful donor base and we don't rely on grants we rely on individual donors so we're pretty stable that way but so that's always a challenge um in bangladesh we have challenges with um, some government corruption and paperwork and logistical things we need to take care of where there's corruption and people wanting bribes and trying to deal with that and even inside some of the broader ngo communities some jealousy and corruption that we deal with have to so there's those kind of things. Um, I won't get into all those stories, but they're like, they're those those kind of things are are ongoing. I think, um, yeah, those are probably the main the main things. I always tell people the actual problems that we're trying to deal with: child marriage, abusive girls. Those things are heartbreaking, but they're not discouraging because that's the reason you're there, right? 
so when I never, those things are sad. Like we had a girl not too long ago pass away. She's only 18. There's just always heartbreak, but those things are heartbreak inside of the realm of like, but this is why these are the girls we love. These are the people we serve. And that's inspirational in a way. The dealing with adults that are being jerks or being corrupt or corrupt government officials or bureaucracy or that kind of nonsense, that is just tiresome on a whole different level, right? So I'll never get like, we'll always have a million child marriage cases and every day there's, oh, this girl ran away, this girl's like semi-kidnapped, like bizarre things, but those don't discourage you because that's why you're there, like you're fighting. But the other things are discouraging, like, really? That guy's spreading rumors? Like, what? what the heck? Like, so those are the harder things. People being jerks, rather than, uh, aside from the actual work we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my mind is flooding with uh, similar experiences. I want to close this fairly quickly, because I've already stolen a lot of your time. But I, I always want to end um, these podcasts on a high. So I just wondered, Troy, if you could, you could answer me. Um, the question and what what two questions actually the first being what makes you happy about the world and the follow-up being what what's your hope for the future um yeah i mean now it seems like what makes me happy i mean it's kind of a tough time just in general we're on lockdown i'm in my home alone like 22 hours a day like i'm like what am i doing with my life but you know i love you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm running this organization, doing these talks, fundraising stuff, but what I, I love when I'm in Bangladesh, when I visit the villages, and I'm like the Pied Piper, like 15 girls, like high school, junior high girls, we just walk around and visit all of their homes, because they all want their uncle and maybe our staff to stay and have, you know, tea and biscuits at their home. I drink a lot of tea, not so much coffee. At the, so that makes me happy because it's just like the goal this the me some legal educated white american guy from california or the west coast little 14 year old bangladesh girl in this dirt poor home the gulf between us were so different but it's so it's so fun just to hang out and they're like my little friends and i always tell people i'm their uncle and i you know when they're screwing around i have to tell them like stop but they're like my little friends and I love it. That makes me happy because all the problems of life and fundraising, all these things can be tiresome, but I never, I physically get tired like, oh, another girl, like 15 more houses, I can't do this. But mentally, like spiritually, that makes me happy. Just being uncle to these girls and it's awesome. Now they're becoming some of them young women, a couple of them getting married and one girl named her little kid Troy like he's this, this one day he's going to be in Bonk Bonk your name is Troy. And he'll be like, yeah, it's a long story, but that makes me happy being friends with my friends. Um, and, and that, I guess that part makes me hopeful. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, hopefully I'm not simple with this because I know it's not so easy and there are going to be massive setbacks and, and you, who knows what could happen i mean six months from now we could be there's a devast there could be a devastating earthquake flood coronavirus outbreak that kills tens of millions just in bangladesh so i'm not like stupid optimistic but because horrible things could happen but i'm also hopeful that if 
what we do in Bangladesh and other places works, it could be amazing because I'm already seeing this. We already have nine or 10 young women who have finished nursing school. And if we can get the right support, we could one day be producing 50, 100 nurses ourselves every year. And the impact that could have not just on that region, but other places could be immense. So I'm hopeful in that my friends, many of them will have better lives and it's fun to be a part of that. It makes me happy. But also that if we do that with millions of girls, I mean, not just speak up for other organizations, we could actually change, ha both change those girls' experience. So it's better to be a young girl in a poor place, hopefully not so poor one day, but also that we actually could transform how girls are treated and it could serve the world. So, but there, I mean, I'm not blind optimism because I know that you know, by the day I'm dead, 100 years now, there still will be problems for, for girls. But I'm hopeful about that part of it happening because I'm starting to see a little sliver, a sliver of that hope. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Hope is hope is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even even a small uh, kernel of it. What yeah. what can we do to help you, mate? Is there anything um, we can do to support your work if people are listening and they feel particularly engaged by your yeah. work they want to become more informed about it or just want to to encourage you and support you in some way what what could we do yeah. anyone can email me just email contact at speakupforthepoor.org and i'll personally follow up with you um, if you have a question or thought of course we'd like people to sponsor one of our girls and a big part of our um, financial model is people for 35 us dollars a month um, um sponsoring one girl so the money is pooled to help all of the girls go together, but then one person can stay connected with one girl and get letters from her and pictures. And um, so I always tell people, it, there's massive global problems that you can't fix, but one place to stay hopeful is at least to say, all these terrible things happening, all this hope in the world, but I can focus it down and say, for me, this one girl will represent my attempt to change the way girls are treated. It's the biggest human rights issue in the world today, but it's the greatest opportunity. So if you wanna work with us and engage with this issue, sponsor one girl, that's an easy thing to do. You can go to our website, speakupforthepoor.org and the donate page, and it's pretty simple. Um, there's five or 600 girls in our program that still need sponsors. Um, so, um, and I'd say just more broadly, learn about the issue of child marriage and, um, and figure out and, you know, think through those kind of issues, but, but email me or sponsor a girl, um, look up, um, our Facebook page. It's, um, speak up girls education program and you can follow us there. So, um, yeah, those are a few tangible ways, but like any organization, we like good thoughts and prayers and all that stuff are awesome, but we need tangible support too. So we'd love people to jump on board with our financial support team. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Troy, thank you so much, mate, sure. for taking the time to jump online with me. And I hope hope you stay well and healthy out there yeah. and, and yeah. you can still keep doing the good work despite the challenges of the present climate. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate the time you've given me. And um, to anyone um, listening, I'm grateful that um, you're helping spread the word. And yeah, let's work together and change things. And I always tell people it's not just service, but you yourself will find life in being involved in, in whatever issue, whatever place of service you found. So, Bryn, you and I and, and some of your listeners, let's work together and help serve the world. Let's do it. Let's do it, man. Cheers, buddy. Yeah, okay. Thanks. So that was pretty good, wasn't it? 
considering we're on other sides of the world talking through our laptops. Certainly listenable, I think. Which is good, because I want to do more of these. A big thank you to Troy for coming on the podcast and sharing so honestly with us. One of the positive things I've noticed about the coronavirus pandemic in the UK, at least, is the attention that is quite rightly being given to the doctors and nurses and carers and cleaners and all of the key workers that are still leaving their houses every day to keep this country moving. And what's been refreshing about that is the way we have rotated our gaze away from celebrity and sports stars to admire and praise those who are now considered valuable to us during this time, but would otherwise be completely unacknowledged in normal everyday life. They have suddenly become our heroes. Why is that? Well, I think it's because of sacrifice. I think the sacrifice they make when they expose themselves to this evil virus in order to help others is a beautiful thing. And it's the same thing I see in the guests that come onto this podcast. These guys are my heroes. They have all chosen to use their lives to serve others, to think outside of themselves. Troy could have spent his life in Southern California working in civil litigation for the big bucks, but he hasn't. He's chosen to go to Bangladesh and create a program that is preventing children from being married off in their teens by providing them with an education and options. And I love that. Imagine if more people, when they come out of this cryosleep we're all going through, decide they want to spend their lives in a different way, in a way that serves others. Anyway, let's close this thing out. My thank you list is almost done. Thank you to Rihanna and Andrew, who both gave generously to enable this podcast project to take place. And for everybody that gave, thank you. If you would like to find out more about Speak Up, you can go to their website at speakupforthepoor.org or find them on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Blue Bear Coffee Company. You can find out more about us at our website, bluebearcoffee.com or Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Come search us out. Thanks for tuning in this week. I'm going to try and get on the line with another one of my heroes in the coming weeks and I'll bring that to you as soon as I possibly can. Until then, stay safe, wash your hands, all the best. Peace.